0: Okay, it's about time to get started. The old clock on the wall says 730. So let's open with a uh, short word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we have tonight to look into your word and look into your covenant dealings with men. And tonight specifically to look at the new covenant and how it is organically related to the covenants that preceded it. We thank you for your word, we thank you for your spirit, which opens our hearts and our minds, and we would ask that you do that tonight, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is session seven, the last lesson. We've taken steps up from the, after the fall, the uh, promise of a redeemer In Genesis chapter 315, we looked at the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, took another step up with the Mosaic Covenant. Last week we looked at the Davidic Covenant, and tonight we're going to look at the New Covenant and hopefully wrap up the class. But just take one slide with me to uh, look at some review from last week. We saw that the covenant with David stands in continuity with the previous covenants. We especially looked at the fact that when the ark was brought to the city of David, Jerusalem, God's throne and David's throne became, well, they more or less, they coalesced. They became linked. And uh, the reason I say that is because it was no longer referred to as David's throne, at Solomon's coronation, he is said to sit on the throne of Yahweh in the place of David. So, we looked at kingship in David, in the person of David. We looked at sonship, which was also a role of the king. We looked at the role of covenant mediator, which is a role that David took on to himself. And so, all three of these came together through David and through linking his throne with God's throne we see that this is really a picture of of uh, something that is to come to fulfill this kingship sonship and covenant mediator roles ultimately and perfectly a Davidic king will be the means by which the promises of land, offspring, and worldwide blessings will be secured. Now let's, now we'll switch gears and look at the new covenant and how it relates. I showed this slide last week as kind of a preview, but when we come to Matthew chapter one, Israel is still in exile. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all make clear that Israel continues in exile. Israel remains defiled before God with the guilt of sin, which you read in Ezra chapter 9. As we come to Matthew chapter 1, they sit under foreign rule. There's no descendant of David ruling over them. They are in exile despite the fact that they are dwelling in the land. Now when we come to the New Covenant... Tom Schreiner makes it perfectly clear that in his view, the New Covenant represents the fulfillment of God's covenants with and His promises to His people. And one significant verse, I think, that supports that is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where it says, Many of the promises of God find their yes in Him. Oh, it doesn't say many of the promises. Most of the promises of God find their yes in Him. No. Not some, not many, not most. Almost all. <laughs> all the promises. Each and every promise of God is answered yes in Jesus Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen. To God for His glory. That's significant. Although organically connected, the new covenant is not a renewal of previous covenants, but it is genuinely new. Now, admittedly, what I'm presenting here is not really compatible which, with uh, dispensational theology. You may have picked this up along the way because Tom Schreiner is not a dispensationalist. And the reason I say that is because in dispensationalism you'll find some disagreements with what I've presented because they would say that all the promises to the nation Israel are fulfilled to Israel, to the nation Israel, literally in the millennium. So they would say these promises are not fulfilled in Christ. They're fulfilled in the millennium with the literal nation, Israel, with a new temple, the reinstatement of sacrifices, and all that stuff. I'm not going to argue for or against that. I'm just saying that Tom Shire is not a dispensationalist. I'm not a dispensationalist. And so there's some things that perhaps you might disagree with if you're a studied dispensationalists. But when we look at the new covenant, we need to consider several themes that set it apart and make it distinctive as opposed to the covenants that's come before. And these are the renewal of the heart, regeneration, complete forgiveness, unlike the Old Testament forgiveness, which was we see in the New Testament, God overlooked the previous sins in view of the coming New Testament and in view of the sacrifice of Christ. So that was not a real forgiveness. That was a temporary forgiveness. But in the New Covenant, we're, we need to see it distinct for its complete forgiveness. And also, the theme of a new Exodus, along with forgiveness, and a new David is something that Is sets the New Testament apart there was an exodus from the garden when Adam sinned but the exodus from Egypt speaks of deliverance and this new exodus that we will see the prophets uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah talking about is a new exodus a new deliverance a new forgiveness with a new David and then the idea of reunification of God's people is something that the Old Testament looks at and which we're going to see is fulfilled in the New Covenant. First, renewal of the heart. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one: Behold, I will make a new covenant, not like the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant I will make after these days. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-three. So Jeremiah is talking about a new covenant. He talks about removing the heart of stone. God giving us his spirit, enabling obedience. The failure that began with Adam is remedied in the new covenant by Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been working towards ever since, ever since the fall and this study. We've been taking steps up toward this Jesus Christ who recapitulates and undoes everything that came from Adam's fall and will make it right ultimately. Now when I say that uh, God Uh, removes our heart of stone and gives us his spirit, enabling obedience. We talked about this before, but uh, Israel didn't have the ability to obey. And I, I made a quote from John Owen, which I thought was pertinent. He said, the Israelites had an ulcerous wound. They could never heal themselves. For they never hated sin as sin. Their blindness proceeded from self-love. The sin in the garden proceeded from self-love and autonomy. The blindness of Israel is, they don't hate sin for the fact that it is sin. They're always looking for a way to get around the fact that sin is sin. But by removing the heart of stone and giving us His Spirit, that enables us through the power of the Spirit, to obey. The failure that began with Adam is remedied. Now the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel are fulfilled in the New Covenant. And this is talked about in the book of Hebrews extensively, but just to look at Hebrews 8.6, if you want to look at that, it says basically, but now Jesus has obtained a superior ministry since the covenant that he mediates is also better and enacted on better promises. Now, some might say that the new covenant that Jeremiah and uh, Ezekiel prophesied was not a new covenant, was not the new covenant for the church and Jesus Christ. It was a new covenant for Israel. And so you will have some dispensationalists actually saying There are two new covenants, one for Israel, which will be fulfilled in the millennium, and one for the church through Jesus Christ. I'm not going to add too much discussion there to say, except to say that's not the view that I'm presenting. And I think the text supports it. The next thing we need to look at, the next theme is the regenerate people. Is quite striking and another way of describing the renewal of the heart. In contrast to the old covenant, every true member of the new covenant is regenerate. Would you, would you agree? 1 John 4.13 says, for example, We know that we reside in God and He in us in that He has given us His Spirit. The Spirit unites us to Christ through faith. And the Spirit regenerates us so that we do in fact believe and place our trust in Christ. That's why as uh, Baptists, we look for a profession of faith before we baptize someone into the church. The reason is because we're presuming based on their confession, that they are regenerate. Ideally, every true member of the new covenant is regenerate, even though we know there's mixed communities in real life. Jeremiah and Ezekiel described things in a different way, but they both point to the same thing. Now, old covenant members were not necessarily regenerate, though the remnant certainly was. Have you ever heard heard distinguished between the remnant and the the rest of Israel in Romans chapter 11 verses one through five is a New Testament reference for that and if somebody has it would you like to read it for us I don't have my Bible open okay you remember the story of Elijah and God says specifically i I reserve for myself seven thousand that not, they all, all haven't turned to Baal. And then he says, verse 5 again, Al. He says, even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant, according to the election. There is a remnant. There was a remnant in Ezekiel's time, or Elijah's time. There was a remnant at Noah's time. God has always had a remnant of Believers through the centuries, through the covenants. And that's what we're referring to here when we say, yes, there was a believing remnant. But all the old covenant members, defined by circumcision at that time, were not necessarily regenerate. Now there's also an already and not yet aspect in the fulfillment of the new covenant. And I'm going to talk about that a minute on the next slide for a little bit for those of you who may not really be familiar with that terminology. But we can say that although the Spirit indwells all New Covenant believers or New Covenant members now, they are not yet completely transformed. So there is an already, we are already believers, we're already united to Christ, we're already experiencing spiritual blessings. But, there's a tension in this life because we are not yet completely transformed. There's an already and there's a not yet. And that's called inaugurated eschatology. And what it basically says is that here's the present age, but something significant happened at Christ's first coming. He brought the kingdom. The kingdom was at hand. He even says in some places, the kingdom is here now. But, the present age continues. And it is not until his second coming that the present age ends and the age to come begins. So where are we? We're in the already but not yet. We're in the last days. We we experience the tension between the inauguration of the kingdom and the fulfillment of the kingdom at Christ's second coming. Okay? In uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Whoops. In these last days. The last days. Started with Jesus. Crucifixion and resurrection. Or actually his incarnation. And the last days continue until he comes again. So that is a peculiar. Or distinctive aspect of the new covenant. That we need to recognize. Where we are. And what's the difference between the present age. And the age to come. And I think it will help as you ponder that and your study of the Bible yourself. The next thing we wanted to touch on was complete forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Christ sits at the right hand of God because the final and complete sacrifice has been offered to atone for sins. Hebrews 10.12, for example. Christ's sacrifice was offered once for his death dealt with sin completely and definitively. Now we can compare that with what we see regarding the Old Testament sacrifices. They had to be offered week after week, month after month, year after year. But Christ's sacrifice was offered once for all. When you say once and for all, that means once and for all time. Once and only once. Paul also tells us that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. 1 Corinthians 5.7 Jesus is the last and best Passover sacrifice. The means by which destruction is averted for who? For those who belong to him. And it's complete forgiveness, not temporary forgiveness. Next, the concept of a new exodus, forgiveness, and a new David that the prophets talked about. Exile and separation from God, as we have seen from Adam onward, is due to sin. Return from exile, meaning restoration to fellowship with God, comes only when there is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And Jesus brings such forgiveness. The new covenant is fulfilled in Jesus Christ since he fulfills the prophecies made about the coming David. Now, due to time constraints, I can't really flesh all this out adequately. I would just refer you to Tom Schreiner's book, which is the basis for this class for more discussion. We're primarily looking at Ezekiel and Jeremiah and the ramifications of that. Ezekiel prophesies the unification of the two kingdoms presented by two sticks. Does anybody remember that story? He takes, in the midst of the exile, uh, Israel was scattered to the four winds in 722 BC. 586 BC, the Babylonians, Babylonians carry off Judah to Babylon. And Ezekiel takes these two sticks, and on the one stick he writes a name representing the northern kingdom. On the other stick he writes the name of a, representing the southern kingdom, and he ties these two sticks together. And he prophesies. He says, David will rule over the united people and shall be their prince forever. Now, David's long dead. What he's prophesying is a new David. There's going to be a new David who will rule over the united people and shall be their prince forever. And when he says rule over the united people, I take that to mean the people of God. And he's specifically talking about reuniting the northern and southern kingdoms. But we shall see that there is also, according to Tom Schreiner, a New Testament application for that. Schreiner says that the reconciliation of the northern and southern kingdoms is found in the New Testament. And he begins to talk about the Samaritans, the remnant of the northern kingdom. They had remained separate and didn't fellowship with the Jews. There's a history of enmity there. You might remember when the Assyrians carried off the people of the northern kingdom, Israel, They took all the best people, took them and scattered them to the winds, and they brought in foreign people, and they intermarried. And basically, the Samaritans had become looked upon by the southern kingdom as half-breeds. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. The Samaritans even had their own temple at Mount Gerizim. Now, it was destroyed before Jesus' time, but if you remember the story of the woman at the well, In John chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, she says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. That's where they're standing, near Mount Gerizim. You say we should worship in Jerusalem. And of course, he answers her saying, The hour is coming when we will worship in spirit and truth, and it won't be here or there. But that's just to say that at Jesus' time, there was still this division. We worship here. You say we should worship there. So, although many Samaritans had believed, if we look at Acts chapter 8, we see a big group of Samaritans had listened to the preaching and had believed, but we're told the Spirit was not given until the apostles Peter and John laid hands on the Samaritans. Do you remember that? I remember because it it's odd. Why Why the delay? Well, I I never had an answer until I read Shiner's book. (laughs) And he says, the best answer is this. God wanted to ensure the unity in the early church avoiding any semblance of a Samaritan branch and a Judean branch. So the Spirit's not given till the apostles come and lay hands on you themselves because there's only one church. There's not going to be a Samaritan branch. There's not going to be a Judean branch. And according to Shriner, this unity and thus, reunification of the two nations is seen in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. We're going to look at that. Here's the verse. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace And was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. There's the northern kingdom. There's the southern kingdom. And they are joined the people of God in this sense believers in Jesus Christ are joined. The the, believers in the northern kingdom the believers in the southern kingdom there's one church and he sees this as fulfillment of Ezekiel of a, yeah, Ezekiel's prophecy pretty interesting i thought now it's clear that the new testament writers see the covenant of jeremiah and ezekiel as inaugurated with the death resurrection of jesus christ there's a list of verses there We're not going to really take the time, but if you want to concentrate on something, go to the book of Hebrews and look at chapters 8, 10. There's a number of places that complete that thought from the text. So the question comes, how can the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament be fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ In the New Testament, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. The answer of the New Testament is that the church of Jesus Christ is restored Israel. Now, again, this is not the way dispensationalists would see it. And they have their reasons. That's just not what I'm presenting, so just be aware of that. No, I don't. I, sure. Ephesians 2.11 and following. Very good. Thanks, Don. That's right. They were outsiders. But Jesus, brought, Christ has brought them together. Now there's one body. Also, the New Testament does make it pretty clear that those who believe in Christ are the children of Abraham. I do have some verses there. We are children of Abraham. Likewise, in Galatians 6.16, believers in Jesus Christ are identified as the Israel of God. Now, admittedly, this verse is disputed. But according to Tom Schreiner, Identifying the church as the Israel of God fits better, far better with the message of Galatians as a whole than to see that as referring to the nation Israel. And, is world, uh, and, all, and thus all Israel will be saved, uh, Romans 11:26. Until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. In in this manner, all Israel will be saved. Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Right. I agree. I'm just saying there's some that wouldn't. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 1 Peter 2.9 Those are the same exact words that were spoken to Israel in Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. So, what's he doing? He's taking words that were applied directly to the nation Israel, and he's applying them directly to the church. I don't know how you can avoid it. True Jewishness and true circumcision are matters of the heart. Hence, Gentile believers transformed by the Spirit are true Jews. Romans 2, verses 25 through 29. I'll just read verse chapter 2, verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. A true Jew is one inwardly one who has been circumcised in his heart that's a true Jew now the unity of the people of god is established in christ and this this is paramount in the old covenant ethnic israel constituted the people of god but now as don pointed us to Ephesians chapter 2 now there is one new man in Christ Jesus hence Jesus is the true Israel and he's the restored Israel and that restored Israel is marked out by all those who are in Christ if he's the true Israel and you are in him you are the restored Israel Ephesians 3:6 This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body partakers of the promise partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel partakers of the promise what promise partakers of what promise Actually, those promises all link together from the promise in Genesis, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We talked about that extensively, but that, I think it's that promise traced through everything we've studied. So here we are. That was the new covenant. And we are in the last days and we are looking forward to the new creation. But let's take a look at the new covenant once again in view of the previous or as associated with the previous covenants. We're maintaining that the new covenant is the consummation and fulfillment of the previous covenants. The new covenant fulfills the covenant of creation. The last Adam, Jesus Christ, has obeyed where Adam failed. The Noahic covenant we saw preserves the world, providing the physical contact context for God's saving purposes to be realized. God determined to redeem man in this world. And he promised to preserve the world until that was accomplished. The New Testament is plain that the true children of Abraham belong to the people of God, not through physical circumcision, but through Jesus Christ. There's several verses there, Galatians 3, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, and Hebrews chapter 2. Now the fundamental aspects of the covenant with Abraham, offspring, land, and blessing, are also fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Physical circumcision in the covenant with Israel is superseded, as we saw by Paul's teaching, by circumcision of the heart. Similarly, the sacrifices of For Israel in the Old Covenant pointed forward typologically to the sacrifice of Christ. They were to convict Israel of sin, show them the need for a sacrifice, and point them to Christ. Land is fulfilled in Jesus Christ on this view in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, the, the blessing of the nations is fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. All these things that went unfulfilled at the end of the Old Covenant are fulfilled in Christ and the consummation or the eschaton in this view. Mainly because non-dispensationalists see one second coming at which time there is judgment, and the consummation there's nothing after that beyond the co- consummation he comes he's coming again once not once to to remove the church from the world so that he can pick up an old plan with Israel and then after a thousand years come again that's dispensationalism that's not the view that shriners is presenting i just point that out for your information. Israel as descended from Adam is God's son. We saw that they're specifically called God's son. And they function as a kingdom of priests. In the Davidic covenant, the promise is narrowed such that the Davidic king is the true son of God. The new covenant prophecies are found in context that also promise a new David, which we looked at. The promise of priesthood is not left behind for the Davidic heir will be both Lord and priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's mentioned in Psalm 110 verses 1 and 4. The new covenant also fulfills the covenant with David. So in conclusion, the new covenant represents the culmination of God's saving work among his people. When we started this out, we said we wanted, to, we were going to start with the old creation, which God created. It was good. Man fell into sin, and from that point on, God is working through His plan of redemption, which culminates in Jesus Christ and will ultimately be fulfilled with us at the consummation, the New Jerusalem, the New heavens and the New earth. Heaven, now, heaven is a temporary situation. (laughs) Heaven is not our goal. Heaven is where we'll be with the Lord until consummation. The consummation involves physical, new Jerusalem, a new heavens, and a new earth. God regenerates his people by his spirit and renews their hearts so that they may obey. The basis for such renewal is the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see, we're reminded in Hebrews that we have a bold new access to God which wasn't available in the old covenant. Remember those verses where it talks about we have, we can now approach the throne of grace? The covenant with Israel passed away and now the promise is fulfilled in the restored Israel which consists of both Jew And Gentile. Now I want you to remember back with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden. God's purpose of creating human beings to rule the world will be fulfilled in Christ and those in Him. The promise of universal blessing is fulfilled in the new creation. The promise that David would not like a man on the throne is fulfilled on Jesus Christ, the eternal person. The eternal king. The eternal son. The eternal mediator. And two verses we looked at earlier. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in many of the scriptures the things concerning himself. There you go. It doesn't say many of the scriptures. It says all the scriptures. And again, for all the promises of God, find their yes in Him. They're answered yes in Him. Amen. So let's look at Revelation 21, verses two through three. And I saw a holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The Emmanuel principle. So, when we look back at Adam and Eve, after they had sinned, in Genesis 3:8 it says, "God was walking in the cool of the day to meet with them." That was the that was the habit for Adam and Eve. Can you imagine? Walking with God face to face in the cool of the day. That's one of the reasons God created man. So he could commune with them and be with them. And they could be with him. And here in Revelation 21, he will dwell with them and they will be his people. What he wanted to happen with Adam and Eve as they multiplied and filled the earth, will happen in the consummation and he will dwell with us. Scott Swain had a quote that I thought was appropriate. He says, we have forgotten what makes the renewed creation worthy of our ultimate longing. The unmediated presence of the triune God. Oh man. That's... That's what we have to look forward to. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus. So, let me just recap. We said at the beginning we wanted to show that covenant is a central theme of Scripture. And I hope that we have. The covenants are organically linked. They're not separate stories in the Bible. They're linked. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and Christ... So linked there could be a pun. They're linked, linked, linked. The covenants indeed formed the backbone of the storyline of Scripture, which was what Tom Schreiner's aim was in his book. To show that the backbone of the storyline of Scripture was there in the covenants for us to see. And it helps us see from the original creation to the new creation. The covenants tell you the story and all the different books of the Bible once you, once you grasp the story you can see where those individual books and individual stories fit in God's plan of redemption from the fall to the consummation covenants indeed help us see the harmony and unity of the biblical message and I hope it has I hope it does I hope it continues to provide us a way of seeing the harmony of the biblical story. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this class, this seven-week class. We thank you for those who have been tenacious to attend (laughs) on a Wednesday night. We ask, Lord, that you would reinforce the truths that may have been spoken and if there was any chaff, that you just uh, dismiss it from our memories. But sear the truth in our hearts and in our minds. And through that, bring us closer to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray and in him who we have our hope. Amen.